0: And so we've started this year by focusing on one of those core values, the core value of prayer. And as I've mentioned every week, I didn't want to just like preach on prayer. I wanted to give you some practical handles that might be helpful for you as you deal with your own prayer life, as you struggle with prayer, as you think about prayer, as you try to live out this hugely important thing. And so I've been interviewing uh, some of our pastors each week, and that's been an amazing experience. We've gotten such great feedback about that, just kind of talking to them a little bit about their prayer life. And this week I'm interviewing Jess Eitflug. Jess is one of our pastors to students. We have two pastors to students, Kyle Cooper and Jess. And Jess, as you know, many of you know, that Jess is one of our teaching pastors here at Fairfax as well. And so I wanted Jess to come and just to kind of have a conversation with her about prayer. And so would you invite Jess Ivluck and welcome her up onto the podium. Good morning, Jess. So thank you so much for doing this. And uh, so let's just begin with kind of the practical stuff of um, like for you, what does a prayer life look like? And I'll yeah. just kind of. Jump ahead with yeah. a follow no, up ahead. to that, of of how maybe that has changed over the years as well. So talk a yeah. little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So um, this is a, a moment of vulnerability for me, if you'll uh, if you'll allow it. So um, I uh, I grew up a follower of Jesus my whole life, and um, and so I had decades, really, where my prayer life was a, was a fairly consistent thing, something that I had cultivated. I had, um, I had routines. I had systems. Um, I, I like things to be kind of planned out ahead of time. And so I had things that I did all the time that were part of my prayer life. For me, that always looked like journaling. I have journal line, you know, bookshelf lined of, of journals that are prayer journals of, um, of prayers over the years. And that worked for me really well And then um, five years, one month and a day to the day, uh, Ella was born, and all of that flew out the window. And here's here's the thing that I, I, uh, the vulnerability, I didn't even notice for a while. I think it was months actually, before I even noticed that I had not returned yet to any of those uh, prayer practices that I had in place. Mm -hmm. And that brought a lot of shame with it, because um, if you had asked me prior to having kids, I would have told you that, like, there was no way, like, that was too important a part of my life, something I had spent too much time cultivating for, that that would just not be a thing for me Mm -hmm. anymore in that way. But five years and a month later, and it's just been a fight. It's been a, I've had to fight to keep a prayer life I've had to fight to have a prayer life for that to be something that is uh, a regular part of my my relationship with God. And so that has been, um, that's been hard. There is some shame in that, some guilt in that. I'm a pastor, so there's that component of it that like I should have, like I should have this down, right? Um, And that's been humbling for me. Um, But uh, what that looks like now Um, There's two things that are uh, a pretty regular part of my life. One is that um, there's kind of a stream of consciousness prayer that I have uh, that I don't, whereas before I would sit down and have time with God that was like this dedicated time of my day, now God just sort of goes with me throughout the day like I, um, I try to just bring God into lots of things yeah. pick up a, like a te- like I have like a texting conversation now with God instead of a sit-down phone call right like God and I are just texting back and forth all day um, and then the other thing that's been really meaningful for me is right after Ella was born um, I started when I would rock her to sleep at night I started just sort of writing a prayer that I pray over her um, most nights when I put her to bed. So Kevin and I trade off on who puts uh, the girls to bed, but the nights that I put Ella to bed, probably about 75% of those nights, because I'm trying to be honest with you, um, I pray the same prayer that I have been praying for her now for five years, Of that I just wrote in my head, just things that I want God to make true about her, things that I want to come true in her life. Not specific qualities, but things like um, when I fall short, like when I'm not good enough, God, you be good enough for her. Those types of things that I, um, that I pray for her every night. And then when Annalise was born a couple of years later, I have a different prayer now that I've written for her, that I pray for her every night. And my hope is that as I, walk, as I Lord willing, get to watch them grow up, that, uh, that I will see those prayers come true in their lives more and more. If you know Annalise, uh, so one of the things I pray for Annalise is that she would find her voice and use it to speak up for what is right. And if you know my uh, youngest child at all, you know that that's not a problem for her. So uh, so I'm already seeing God um, be, be fruitful yeah. in those prayers. Yeah.
0: So you talked about the struggle of the schedule in many respects, yeah. time, just with a family and kids and the, the irregularity that that kind of brings. What about other struggles that you've dealt with as you seek to have a prayer life with the Lord.
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think that a, a lot of uh, a lot of us deal with is like coming up with things to say, especially mm. when your day mm. um, when your days look so much alike from one day to the next. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, like uh, I know that not all of us in this room have done like the early motherhood thing, but especially in those like early years, like. Like, it's just the same thing every single day. And so uh, and so coming up with like, what am I supposed to say to God today when the today, and I don't know, it just feels, I feel boring sometimes, <laughs> right? Um, and so for me, having this realization that God is not interested in me being interesting um, and that I don't have to prove anything to God when I pray. Mm-hmm. That me coming to God isn't about me putting on a show, and I, I don't need to be a pastor when I come to God, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like God didn't. God knows if we if what we say we believe about truth. God is what we say we believe to be true about God is true. Then God already knows all the mess. Like I don't have to. I'm not surprising God when I tell God that I'm a mess, right? And so, um, I'm not surprising God when, like, God knows how hard I'm working to, like, do the, to keep all the, all the, all the plates spinning, right? And so, um, I don't have to, like, God's not looking at me like, oh, I didn't realize you were having a hard time. Okay, good to know, right? Like, God already knows all of those things. And so, um, I can just be honest. I can just, uh, my most real self can come through in my prayers. And yeah. that, sometimes as a, as a part of me, I don't want other people to see, but yeah. I can let God see that. Yeah. about me
0: and what would you say has been so many benefits obviously to prayer but for for you how has that worked itself out what 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 has just what has been the impact yeah. of prayer in whatever shape or form it's taken the impact of prayer yeah. on your life
1: um so god answers prayers and i know that we know that but like i've gotten to see god answer my own prayers. Um, and God continues to speak to me, um, in way sometimes in some of my driest seasons of my prayer life, mm. God has, uh, still chosen to speak to me and to speak new blessings into my life. I told you all about one of those times about a year ago, um, when I was sitting over there and, and I, I told you about it a year ago, but it was a little longer than that ago when God just spoke to me in this room during one of these services, um, that it was like it was like whispering in my ear, and that happened at a time when it felt like my prayer life was not good enough, mm. that I was not I was not checking the boxes, mm. um, and so one of the things that I have that God has shown me is that um, I don't have to check boxes to uh, have a relationship with God. In fact, like, that's kind of insulting to God, right? Like, I don't want anyone to feel like they have to check boxes to have a relationship with me. My parents certainly don't want me to feel like I have to check boxes to have a relationship with them, right? Like, they just want me to show up in who how, however I am. And so if that's true, we have this metaphor of God that is not, a, as, a, as a parent, that is not 100% work. And some of us have not had great parents. but um, But if you think about what a healthy parent is supposed to be like, they just want... Just, they just want you to show up, right? They don't need you to make sure you've got it all together. They just want you to show up. And that's certainly what I want for my own children. Yeah. So just just talk to me, just show up. And so um, that has, that shame that I had to deal with on the other side of that was a freedom that uh, I don't have to try to get it right. I just have to be who God's created me to be. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and that's, I think, really important.
0: Yeah, Jess, thank you yeah. so much. Would you show your appreciation to Jess Eifluck? Yes. <laughs> It's so awesome. It's so helpful, I think. Um, you know, I, I would just encourage you in, in your own journey of prayer, I, I think this word shame has come up a lot. I think maybe everyone that we've talked to uh, on our staff has talked about the fact that sometimes there's this shame that somehow maybe our prayer life's not measuring up to the thing that it should be. And, and I think a lot of us maybe deal with With that, and I and I would just encourage you. You know, usually we go dark on this stuff, and people talk about prayer, and we just kind of nod our heads and just kind of go, "Yeah," just pretending like ours is like amazing, and we never struggle with anything, and we're always right at the face of God, and 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 that's just not true in this broken, sinful world. And it's so helpful to just be honest, to have friends that you can be honest with, and say, "Hey, can." Can you tell me a little bit about your struggles? I'll tell you a little bit about my struggles. And uh, to really be honest about that, to kind of put off all of the pretense and the kind of maybe sometimes fake spirituality and just say, hey, let's just kind of talk about where we struggle with this because this is so important. And, and we want to we have a vibrant, intimate relationship with God, and so let's help each other like figure out how to do that in a in a in a better way. So um, so I mentioned that for this series we're hanging out in the Book of Psalms, and the reason is because Psalms was Israel's prayer book. That it was a book of prayers in poetic form that God gave to the nation of Israel, basically to help them deal with difficult stuff in their lives, to deal with the the difficult things that they were going through, and to deepen their relationship with God. And specifically, we've been looking at these three uh, psalms, three of my favorite psalms. And uh, as I mentioned, the three of my favorites, people will go, those are three weird psalms to be your favorite. Like, they don't seem to fall in the same categories. And that's kind of the point, because they're, they're my favorites in some respects because they are so different. The first one that we talked about the first week was Psalm 103, which is this prayer of praise and thanksgiving, this glorious, glorious, glorious psalm. And the last week we looked at Psalm 88, which is this prayer of lament and this prayer of confusion. I did did have a friend this week who sent me, you know, I mentioned that no one sends me a text from that psalm. And I did have a friend this week who does send me encouraging texts who sent me the last verse, that darkness is my closest friend. Uh, Love you, Rod, have a great day. And, uh, and, and then they said, so you can never say that no one has ever sent you one of those. So I did get one of those. And, uh, and today we're looking at Psalm 51, which is a prayer of confession and a prayer of repentance. And as we're gonna find out, confession is kind of the precursor in some respects to repentance, and we'll unpack that a little bit. Uh, Psalm 51 is probably the most famous prayer of confession in the Bible, and, uh, and it rose out of one of the most famous failures in the Bible, David's affair with Bathsheba, and, and that's actually the heading to the prayer. Remember I told you last week that many of the Psalms have these headings. They're not the text, but they're in the, they're in the Bible, and it's like a heading that describes this is who wrote the Psalm, or this is the instructions for those who are singing the psalm, or this is the the situation that the psalm was responding to, whatever it is, like there's some heading. Here's the heading of Psalm 51. A psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's the heading of the psalm, okay? So there you go, no beating around the bush about the reason and purpose of this prayer, no walking on eggshells. It's like in your face, this is what happened, and this is what led to this prayer. And that's what I love, to be quite honest, it's what I love about the Bible. It's what I love about God's word. It's so incredibly honest about its heroes. It it doesn't treat its heroes the way culture treats its heroes. Like, we we tend to, to deify our heroes like we build monuments to our heroes and we name things after our heroes and, and we buy uh, things that our heroes tell us to buy, all of that, and we pretty much ignore their failures. But then when we find out something about them or about their past or whatever it is that maybe we can't ignore, then we go from deifying our heroes' of uh, Building monuments to our heroes, to tearing monuments down. Like we demonize our heroes and act like they're the worst people in the history of the world. And the Bible just doesn't do that. Praise the Lord. The Bible is, is honest. It's so more, it's so much more honest about the heroes of the faith, the heroes in this world so much more honest than culture is. It reveals, it doesn't build monuments to them, it doesn't deify the heroes of the faith, it doesn't do all the things that we do, but it doesn't demonize them either. It's just really honest. It reveals both their strengths and their weaknesses. And it doesn't hold back, it's honest honest about the failure of David. But it, it's not just David. It's painfully honest about the failures of Abraham and the failures of Moses and the failures of Peter. And, and the list just goes on and on. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the story about the failure of David that led to this prayer. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, but I do want to give you just like a brief summary. And, and this is kind of the, uh, the summary of it. David has become king, and one day he's on his rooftop and is um, the palace of course, is higher than all of the other you know houses around it and he's looking out uh, kind of at his kingdom and all the houses and he sees uh, a woman who is bathing on top of uh, the roof it, kind of the what she thought was the privacy of her garden there. and in that moment, he feels like Uh, He has to have her, and so David has her brought into the palace, and he sleeps with her. And the woman's name, as many of you know, is Bathsheba, and she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah had a very close and intimate relationship, or at least a dependency, close relationship with David. Uriah was uh, one of David's mighty men. You may remember in First and Second Samuel, it talks about David's mighty men. I love that term, his mighty men. It was this, this group of elite soldiers, kind of like the Navy SEALs, except even more exclusive than that. Originally, there were 37 of them, and these 37 mighty men, these mighty warriors, they fought alongside David, with David, fighting against Saul, who was trying to killed David and was always on attack against David and they fought with David and they protected David and they saved David's life. And eventually when David becomes king, that same unit of mighty men, of Navy SEALs, that same unit is kept intact, but it grows to about 80 men. And Uriah is one of those guys, which means that he was close to David. The fact that his house is within the shadow of the palace, just reinforces that. And in many ways, David owed Uriah his life. But all of that, prior relationship, all that doesn't stop David. Out of his hubris, he continues his relationship with Bathsheba. And one day, Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. And in an attempt to cover his sin, David brings Uriah home from the battlefield where he's on the front lines protecting Israel in battle, ostensibly to um, get an update on like how the battle is going. But in reality, David wants Uriah to sleep with his wife, to sleep with Bathsheba, so it will look like he's the one who got her pregnant. But Uriah refuses to enjoy the comforts of home while his warrior friends While his other mighty men, the people who are in battle, are in the midst of conflict while they are on the battlefield, he doesn't feel right even going into his own home. So for several nights, he sleeps on the doorstep of his own home, but he doesn't go inside. And so frustrated that his plan wasn't successful, but still wanting to cover over his sin, David sends Uriah back into battle with a note that obviously Uriah never saw, but he gave to Uriah to give to Joab, who was the commander uh, of of the army, and the note says to put Uriah on the front line in the fiercest part of the battle, and then while the battle is raging, to pull back all of the other men so that Uriah would be killed by the enemy, and Joab follows David's order, and Uriah is in fact killed. Now, David thinks everything is okay. He thinks that since Uriah now is dead, he can legally marry Bathsheba, take her as his wife. And that's what he does. But then the prophet Nathan shows up and he tells David a story. He says there was a a rich man with lots of sheep and there was a poor man with only one little lamb. And the rich man who had lots of sheep wanted to prepare a feast for himself. And so instead of slaughtering one of his sheep that he had, of the many sheep that he had, he took the one little lamb from this poor man and he slaughtered it instead and and had his feast from that. And when David hears the story, he immediately cries out, That man should die. Like, that is wrong. That man should die. And then, in the greatest conclusion, the greatest application point at the end of the sermon in the history of the world, Nathan says, You are that man. Mic drop, no prayer, no song. No nothing, no benediction, just you are that man. End of sermon point has been made. And all of a sudden, David's world begins to unravel, and suddenly he sees the depth of his sin, and he's plunged into guilt. And in response to all of this, David prays this prayer that we have in Psalm 51. And, like I've done with the other prayers that we've looked at, I just want to pray the, I just want to to go through the whole prayer, let you hear the whole prayer, because I think it gives you a sense of David's heart as he is responding to his own sin. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me. Cleanse me. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness Again, let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation that you have given to me. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then... I will teach, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken, contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is a prayer of confession and repentance at its core. Now the reality is that Most people are oftentimes, maybe not most people, but oftentimes people confuse repentance with remorse. And actually, they are two very, very different things. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul uses the word sorrow to talk about the difference between repentance and remorse. And he says it this way, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret that's what godly sorrow does but worldly sorrow brings death godly sorrow godly sorrow leads to salvation worldly sorrow brings death paul says there's a kind of sorrow for our sin that leads to life and actually frees us from the regret of the past the regrets of the past the regret of our sin, and he calls that godly sorrow. And then he says there's another kind of sorrow. It's sorrow, but it's a sorrow that leads to death, and he calls that worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow is basically just remorse over the consequences of our sin, right? Like you're sorry for how your sin has affected you, how it's impacted your life, how it has changed Your life and and what you're doing. It may be even sorry for how it's impacted the life of others and how it's affected others. Worldly sorrow doesn't necessarily, however, change your behavior or take away your guilty conscience. In, In fact, it may even cause you to wallow in your guilt even more. And that's why Paul says worldly sorrow leads to death. And that's the kind of sorrow, worldly sorrow. Now, I don't think people in culture would necessarily ever talk about it in terms of worldly sorrow, but that's the thing that even the world understands is unhealthy, what Paul describes as worldly sorrow. Like, that's just not healthy, that kind of sorrow. In fact, it's the kind of sorrow that many people think the church promotes. Like, when the church talks about repentance, oftentimes the world interprets that as being this, as being worldly sorrow. And that's why many people have like checked out on church because who wants to be a part of an organization that encourages you to wallow in your guilt and live with a guilty conscience all the time? Like that's not, that's just not healthy. That's not the way you should live life. And and so oftentimes on the outside, there's kind of looking in and saying, oh, well, the church is all about like this, this guilt and wallowing in guilt and feeling terrible about yourself. No, that's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. That's not repentance. That's remorse. That's not godly sorrow that leads to life. That's worldly sorrow that leads to death. So what is godly sorrow? What does repentance that leads to life and to no regret, what does that, Look like. And we see it throughout this prayer, but we don't have time to kind of look at every single aspect of it. But I think the center of it, the core of it, is found in verse 4. David says, let me read it again. David says, Against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Two things I want you to notice here, and you see it in the whole prayer. First, I want you to notice that life-giving repentance begins with a, a clean confession of sin. Now, what do I mean by that? A clean confession of sin. A clean confession of sin is a confession where there is no blame shifting that's going on. Like, David is taking full responsibility for his sin. He's not blaming his environment. He's not blaming his, uh, blaming his upbringing. He's not blaming the fact that he was under stress as the king and he has all this pressure on him as a king. And so that was the reason. He's not blaming any of that. He doesn't try to minimize his sin. He doesn't try to relevantize uh, his sin. No, he just says, I have done evil in your sight. And that's huge, because so often we miss the freedom that is possible when we repent of our sins because our our confession is not clean. Even when we're confessing, we are blame-shifting. Like, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't have done that. Or this is because of my parents. Or, or this is because of how I was raised. Or I'm not the only one at fault here. Yeah, I know I'm at fault, but I'm not the only one at fault. Or we minimize. Like this isn't as big a thing as like you're making it out to be such a big thing, it's not as big a thing. We try to minimize it. Or we relativize it. Like we compare it to someone else's sin. We do that a lot of time. We relativize our own sins when we listen to sermons about David and his sin. Because we hear about David and how he killed a guy and he had this affair and it was awful and blew his life up and all that and we go, well at least my sin is not as bad as that. Like at least I haven't killed anyone yet and uh, made it through the day so uh, kids have been okay so so far I can still say that but uh, so like we relativize our sin, we compare our sin to someone else and David doesn't do that. Life-giving repentance begins with a clean confession of sin. But the second thing I want you to notice, I want to spend a little bit more time on this, is that life-giving repentance confronts the sin behind the sin. (laughs) You know, we are always focused on, I guess in counseling terms, what they would call the In counseling terms, they talk about the presenting issue. In this, it would be the presenting sin. And we oftentimes focus on the presenting sin and ignore the sin behind the sin. And life-giving repentance actually confronts the sin behind the sin. David says to God, against you, you only, have I sinned. And the double use of you is just like an emphasizing of the statement. Now, David is is in no way denying that he violated Uriah, that he violated um, Bathsheba, and and even he violated his, his office as the king. He's not trying to minimize the impact that it had on them. He knows it cost Uriah his life. He knows his sin cost Bathsheba the shame and guilt of being unfaithful to her husband. He knows it, that it even costs Israel in several ways. Like, he knows all of that. What David is talking about here is that sin is not primarily about breaking God's law. Like, the law says, you shall not commit adultery. That sin is not primarily about breaking God's law. It's about breaking our relationship with the law giver, the one who gave the law. It's telling God, I know what's best for me in this moment, and you don't. It's telling God, I want what's best for me in this moment, and I'm not sure that you do. So I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I'm gonna do what seems for me to be the best thing for me in this moment. Not what you think is best for me in this moment. Not what your word says is best for me in this moment. When David committed adultery, he was in essence saying to God, I know better than you what is good for me in this moment. And I want what is good for me more than you want what is good for me in this moment. And the reality is that's at the core of Every sin, like whatever manifests itself in our life, whatever no decisions that we make that are no decisions to God, like that's at the core of every sin. It's the sin under every other sin. It's the belief that God doesn't love us enough to want the best for us. That was at the core of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. It was the serpent convincing them that God didn't really love them, that he really didn't have their best in mind, that he really didn't want the best, and he just wanted to control it, It was trying to convince them of that. That's why life-giving repentance is not just about being sorry that you've broken God's law, it's about being sorry that you've broken God's heart, that you've rejected God's love, that you've rejected the idea that God loves you and truly, truly, truly does want the best for you. To repent literally means to turn. We've talked about that before. It's to, it's to be heading in a certain direction and to turn. And usually when we talk about repentance, we're talking about repentance from like a certain behavior, like repent, repentance of a particular act or a particular attitude or a particular addiction or whatever it is, like turning from that, turning from that, turning from that. And it does include all of that. But life-giving repentance is not just turning from your behavior, it's turning from the belief that you can't trust God. It's turning from the belief that God doesn't love you enough to know what's best for you. It's turning from the belief that you know what's best that will make you happy and will fill you with joy. It's turning from that. It's turning away from that. It's repenting of that. And in this prayer of repentance, David is willing to turn from all of that But he knows in order to do that, in order to live out this repentance, he knows that something has to change on the inside in order for that to happen. Because he knows that something is broken on the inside. And you see that in verse five when he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is just acknowledging here that there is something in the center of his being, something in the core of his being that is broken. And it didn't just get broken when he had an affair with Bathsheba. It wasn't that he wasn't broken and then he did this particular thing and acted in this particular way and he became broken. He's saying, no, I realize that I've been broken all along that I've been broken my whole life. In fact, the sinful things that he's doing all flow out from a brokenness that is on the inside. His willingness to disobey God's word is flowing out of a brokenness that's on the inside. His self-centeredness in this moment is flowing out of a brokenness that's on the inside. His self absorption with himself where he can't think of anyone else except him and his needs is flowing out of a brokenness that's on the inside. So part of his prayer of repentance is not just that God would change his behavior. His prayer is that God would change his heart. He says in verse 10, create in me, O God, a clean heart, a pure heart a new heart, that there's something on the inside that is broken, and I know that you are the only one who can fix it. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David knows that if God changes his heart, if God changes him on the inside, then his outward behavior will change as well. David knows that he doesn't need to just tweak a few behavioral things in his life and everything will be fine. He needs to be rescued. He needs to be restored. He needs to be transformed. He needs to be, he needs to be born again to, to reference the story with Jesus and Nicodemus. He needs to, he needs something new to happen on the inside. See, David's not just looking for a second chance. You know, sometimes when we fail, it's like, we, we just, oh, we just want a second chance. We're looking for a second chance. David's not looking for a second chance because he knows that if things don't change on the inside, even if he gets a second chance, he'll just find another way to blow it. He's looking for a new heart. He's looking for a clean heart. So how does God? how does God do that? How does God create a clean heart within David? How how does God create a clean heart within us? Like, how does God do that? Well, he does it by doing two things that on the surface seem in tension with each other, like they seem contradictory to each other. And and David prays for both of these things. Look at verses nine and 11. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out, All of my iniquity. But then he says in verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And the word presence there also means face. It could be interpreted as face. So, in a very real sense, what David is saying is Hide your face from my sins, but don't hide your face from me. God, I need you to hide your face from my sins but I need you to not hide your face from me. Now, how can God do that? Like, how can God hide his face from our sins and not hide his face from us? Hide his face from our sins and not be removed from our presence? And the answer is the cross, See, we know something that David didn't know. We know the cost. We know the cost, what it cost God to answer David's prayer. David's prayer was, hide your face from my sins, but don't hide your face from me. And what David didn't know in asking that prayer that we know is we know the cost We know what it costs God to answer that prayer. We know that on the cross, God hid his face from his son, hid his face from Jesus, who took all of our sins on himself so that he would not have to hide his face from us, so that we could always experience his presence, always experience the power of his Holy Spirit. And when you look at that, when you look at what Jesus did for you on the cross, it eats away, it tears away at this terrible lie that the enemy is constantly trying to convince you of that God doesn't love you enough to know what is best for you, that God doesn't love you enough to want what is best at you. When you look at what Jesus has done on the cross, it just begins to rip and tear and destroy that lie, that lie that, that, that you cannot have confidence in God, that lie that somehow you've gotta figure out how to make yourself happy, that, that somehow if you really wanna be happy, you're gonna to have to ignore God's word and figure out for yourself what will make you happy. It begins to tear away at the fabric of that lie. When you look at what Jesus did for you on the cross, you know that your prayer of confession and repentance will always lead to God's forgiveness and his grace. You can with confidence pray the prayer that David prayed. You can with confidence say, God, have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love, according to your confessions, Oh God, according to your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You can pray with confidence. God, wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me, God. You can pray with confidence. Cleanse me, God, with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. No matter what has gone on in the past, no matter what decisions we have made in the past, you can with confidence pray that prayer that God will make you whiter than snow. Let me, you can with confidence pray this prayer. Let me hear joy and gladness, oh God. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. God, restore the joy of your salvation. I am confident that you are going to restore the joy of your salvation. And folks, that's not a one-time prayer. We pray it the first time. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins. We embrace the one who has forgiven us of our sins. And the first time we pray that prayer, we are raised to life in Christ. That's what we're celebrating today. People who have been raised to life in Christ. People who have been willing to confess. People who have been willing to repent. People who have been willing to embrace what Jesus has done for them on the cross. We are celebrating that today. The first time we pray this prayer, that's what happens is that we are raised to life in Christ. But repentance, repentance is not a one-time prayer. It's not a one-time thing, repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is what keeps us from wallowing in our sin. (laughs) Repentance is what keeps us from getting stuck in our sin. Repentance is what keeps us from being defined by our sin and defined by our past. Repentance is like spiritual breathing. Repentance breathes God's forgiveness and grace into our life every day. It breathes in God's love. It breathes in God's forgiveness. It brings in God's grace. And it breathes out the guilt. And it breathes out the shame. And it brings out the failure. It breathes all of that out. It is this act of spiritual breathing. That's why repentance has to be a part of our daily existence it's part of our our spiritual walk with him it is this act of breathing in God's grace and forgiveness breathing out the guilt and the shame breathing in the good breathing out the bad so keep on breathing keep breathing in God's forgiveness keep breathing in God's grace Keep breathing in God's love and keep breathing out that guilt. And keep breathing out that shame. Keep breathing out those failures so that you can breathe in all, all of God in your life. God, we are so thankful that you have given us the avenue of repentance to be able to live out this Life, this new life in Christ that is ours. That you have given us this this mechanism, this way for us to on a daily basis to breathe in your forgiveness and your grace and your love and to breathe out shame and guilt and the failures of the past. And Lord, we know when we truly are doing that when we are truly breathing in your grace that it changes us it doesn't cause us to live sloppier lives morally it it causes us to want to be in the yes position to you because we know we can trust you we know that you know best We know that you love us so much that you want the best for us. Every time we look at the cross, we are reminded that you love us that much, that you are not a God who is trying to take away life from us. You are not a God who is trying to keep us from experiencing life, that in every moment, you know what's best. And so, Lord, may we walk with the trust that you are a God who cares for us, who knows what's best for us, and who gives us the opportunity when we reject that to come back to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, we pray. And all the people of God said, Amen.